So is there any truth to the claim that today's Palestinians are descendants from the ancient Canaanites? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, there is some very fascinating history to the life of Prime Minister Netanyahu, to scandals associated with him in the past, his marriages, and how there's somewhat of a parallel with him and Donald Trump. Yeah, I'll talk to you about that today on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, not in gossip column fashion, but in a way I think you'll find interesting. I want to interact with a quote from Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas once again raising the fictitious claim that today's Palestinians are descendants of the ancient Canaanites. In other words, they are the original inhabitants of the land. Not exactly the kind of thing you want to take pride in, but even so, fictitious claim. We will talk about that as well as a number of other things. It is thoroughly Jewish Thursday, which means the phones are open to your Jewish-related questions. So what comes under that category? A Hebrew question? a question about Messianic prophecy, Jewish background to the New Testament, a question about Judaism, Jewish practice, tradition, Jewish objections to Jesus, Yeshua. You might be a Jewish listener, and you are not yet convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. You're convinced that he's not, and you'd like to interact with me. Phone lines are open. Also, if you've got a question about modern Israel today, would gladly speak with you. 866-34-TRUTH. All right. How many times has Donald Trump been married? You'll know the answer to that. Three. And that's been one of the issues. A thrice married president supported by conservative evangelicals. How could that be? A man known for his playboy past, a narcissist businessman. How could he be supported by evangelical Christians? This is something that's come up often in conversation. And when I was supposed to be on Chris Cuomo a couple of weeks back to debate the issue of conservative evangelicals supporting Donald Trump, one of the things I was going to say plainly was, listen, uh, he was not, for most of us, our first candidate. We had concerns about his past and the depth of his conservative stance. But in light of babies being slaughtered in the womb, we thought he'd do a better job than Hillary Clinton. And in light of Christians being slaughtered in the Middle East, we thought he'd do a better job than Hillary Clinton. And in light of our religious freedoms being threatened, we thought he'd do a better job than Hillary Clinton. In other words, we voted with our eyes wide open with various concerns, but in balance felt that he would do the better job on issues that were very important to us. And we also felt that Hillary Clinton herself had her own history that was corrupt in different ways and that was morally concerning. Well, what about Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu? so highly regarded by evangelicals in America when he has spoken to Congress standing ovation after standing ovation, looked at as a real hero and a man that speaks the truth and immovable, a man of conviction and these kinds of things. And of course, for Americans, the fact that he studied in America and he speaks English with an American accent makes him sound very much like one of us. Obviously, English is his second language. In any case, in any case, Uh, 
Well, Hebrew certainly is first. Does he have another language that he speaks even better than English? Anyway, Hebrew is his first language. Fact is that Prime Minister Netanyahu has also been married three times. Did you know that? Yeah. And when he was much younger in his political career back in 1993, there were allegations of him having an affair. Well, he went on public television in 1993 and confessed to apparently numerous affairs. I've tried to get the exact transcript. I haven't been able to, to find that. But he confessed to marital infidelity. So here you have a man now married three times with a known adulterous past. This is known. This is not disputed. This is public record that he confessed to. And yet, right-wing conservatives voted for him in subsequent elections. And very orthodox Jews, for whom morality is very important and, and marital fidelity is important, they also voted for him. So even though he's a very different man than President Trump, even though he is much more of a statesman, at least at this point in his career, I don't know how much back then, uh, within Israel, he remains a very controversial figure. Within Israel, there is constant bickering. He, he is much more respected and loved in America than in Israel. Israel, everybody's tearing down everybody. Israel, you're not going to have like a majority of the people behind you. It's just that you have the largest group among the minority. I mean, that's kind of the way it works out. And, and in Israel, you ultimately vote for parties, not for people. And then the party has to put together a majority government. So because you never get enough votes, you got 120 seats in the Knesset, you're, you're not going to get 61 seats for your party. So maybe you get 35, and, and that's the, the biggest group, and maybe your competitor has 30. So you got to scramble to get those other 26 seats, and you're going to have to compromise with some groups you really don't want to in order to have a coalition. I mean, that's just the way it works. And, and I've read years back when I was reading more stuff in Israeli newspapers and reading more things in Hebrew, etc., uh, in a modern Hebrew, I would read the most vicious attacks and assaults back and forth, you know, from Israelis attacking Israelis. To this day, it makes American politics look tame. But it's interesting that despite Prime Minister Netanyahu's known moral failures, confessed moral failures, and the fact that his present wife of many years now is his third wife, he has been a popular leader, elected to be prime minister, then out, and then elected again. So, uh, you know, in his current tenure going on, so he remains prominent. And check this out. I've also read that many Israelis look at adulterous affairs differently, that the country being more liberal, generally speaking, of the very religious, and then the rest of the country being more liberal, that many of them look at things the way uh, Europe looks at Bill Clinton, looks, what's the big deal he had affairs? Everybody has affairs. All leaders have affairs. I mean, that's, that's how a lot of Europeans look at it. Like, what, what are you Americans? You're so puritanical. And I've even read that in the Israeli army, of course, it's mandatory service, three, unless you're an ultra-Orthodox Jew studying in yeshiva, three years for men out of high school, two years for women out of high school. So you're, you're going to have a lot of immorality right there. That's understood. But then men up until, what is it, 50, have to serve one month uh, in the reserves. So they're away from family 
one month each year, uh, they can be away from family. And some of them, yeah, that's when they do what they want to do. In, in, In other words, in that way, it could be a more permissive society than America, as liberal and immoral as we can be. There's still that that conservative pushback. All that to say is just it's interesting that people have ultimately said, look, we believe he's the best man for our security. Look, we, we, we believe he's the best man in fighting against terror, and therefore we're going to vote for him. And yeah, he's, he's got some questionable past with marriage and infidelity and things like that. But when it comes to security, we think he's a good guy. Look, I was just reading about Moshe Dayan, the legendary general, famous in Israel. You've all seen him with the, the eye patch. Uh, and he was famously promiscuous from all accounts, from his daughter talking about it quite freely. And then the mother, the wife just put up with it. Yet he's a hero in Israel. And some say that was part of the heroism, too. He was, famous, he was a womanizer. Seriously? Yeah, well, you're not talking about believers looking at it or religious Jews. You're talking about a secular population looking at someone. One other thing, though. Right now, there are scandals and charges. I talked about it briefly last week. Bribery, corruption charges that have come against the prime minister. And some have compared it to the Robert Mueller investigation, that it's, it's just an attempt to take somebody down. And just as Democrats and leftists and, and some Republicans want to take President Trump down, this is just an inside job to try to take Prime Minister Netanyahu down, and it's going to come to nothing. Recently, someone in within Netanyahu's own circle seems to have turned on him. Where this is going to go, I don't know. But I bring up the past to say he has survived charges, moral charges in the past, infidelity then, now bribery, corruption, uh, with his own family, with his wife, with his kids. How far does it go? Is there truth to it? Or will Israelis say, we don't care. He's the best leader we have to protect our safety. We shall see. 866-34-TRUTH. I just pray for God's best for Prime Minister Netanyahu and for the nation. You say, I don't know how to pray. Well, pray that God, your very best plan for Prime Minister Netanyahu and for the nation. All right. Speaking of Israel, don't forget February 1st through 10th, 2019. This will only be the third Israel tour that we've done. I've been to Israel a minister many times. This will only be the third tour that we've done. So not only will you have a first-class tour guide, February 1st through 10th, just go to our website, askdrbrown.org, and click there right on the homepage for more information. But we're calling it Holy Fire in the Holy Land. Not only will you have an awesome tour guide that we use every time, one that's used by by top leaders when they go over there, and famous American media people use her when they go over there. Not only will you have her, you'll have Scott Volk, my, my dear friend and colleague that leads tourist Israel constantly. He'll be there with you all the time. During the day, there'll be select sites where I'll be there and do some special teaching because I'm not a tour guide. We've got a first-class tour guide. But then at night, we're going to have special meetings with me. Every night, we're going to do something, be it a Q&A session with me, be it a prayer and ministry time, be it getting some other Israeli believers in and we'll minister together, be it going somewhere where I'm going to speak, be it going to do my radio show with me. You'll have opportunities. So we'll get in ministry to you, meals together, plus the full tour with your tour guide, Scott, during the day. So uh, tour guide and Scott during the day. So sign up today, February 1st through 10th, 2019. 
we've only done two tours. If I did them as much as I was asked to, I'd do them just about every month. And the people that have gone with us have been so radically and dramatically transformed. It's been incredible. And the accommodations are great. Great meals, great hotels, great tour. But the biggest thing is just to be there. It, it's so life-changing. And even though I, I knew, and I've said this over and again, I knew when we invited people to come the first time, how impacted they'd be. I was still surprised by how impacted they were. Okay, we come back. I'm going to go straight to the phones. Your Jewish-related questions on this thoroughly Jewish Thursday, 866-348-7884. That is the number to call. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call if you've got a Jewish Related question, 866-34-TRUTH, the number to call. Let's go straight to the phones and continuing to talk about Prime Minister Netanyahu. Let's go to Lisa in Des Moines, Iowa. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I enjoy your show. Thank you. Um, I just I think the reason why more conservatives are more forgiving of um, Prime Minister Netanyahu is because he confessed, and once you confess, that is saying that you know that what you did was wrong. Mm-hmm. And Trump doesn't seem interested in or repentant about much of anything. And I think that's where the difference lies. Yeah, it's definitely... Listen, we understand there's going to be a lot of swiping left, right, both sides going after each other. Uh, and, and that's just going to... You know, we're going to be partisan. There's no question about that. But I agree with you 100% that if President Trump forthrightly said, yes, this happened. Now, look, there's certain things he's denying, right? But let, let's just say that he said, yes, I did that. I'm guilty of it. I'm ashamed of it. Uh, I confessed it to my wife years ago. I'm ashamed it's come out to the public. But yes, this is part of my past. And sorry to say, you shouldn't be surprised because I boasted about things like this in the past. Now I'm ashamed of them. And as a nation, I appreciate your forgiveness and mercy. That goes a long way. Americans are a forgiving people. And and even when you have some athlete that's really blown it, does something really ugly, when they're contrite about it, when they when they ask for forgiveness, they they get a tremendous amount of support. Look, when when President Trump during the, uh, the Hillary Clinton debate referenced some uh, that horrific tape and comments he made and said, look, I'm not proud of it. It's just locker room talk, meaning I haven't really done that stuff, but it's I'm not proud of it. OK, that was a step in the right direction. But as and in and, and one speech, I remember writing about it, saying maybe he's going the right direction. In one speech, he, he said that he had spoken harshly about people and he regretted it. And, and, and I thought, OK, that's positive. That's good. 
But no, I've not seen that as a pattern that when he blows it, he he acknowledges it and asks for forgiveness. And if he did that, it, it would go a long way. It would make it a lot easier for people to get behind him. So so you're right. Uh, and, and listen, what, what many people have a hard time realizing is that there's great strength in humbling yourself, that it takes moral character to do that. It takes moral strength to do that, to say, I was wrong. I blew it. No excuses. Please forgive me. With God's help, I'm not going to repeat that. That that is a sign of strength, not weakness. Many people well, think. Well, even Clinton any... did it. I mean, if Clinton, even Clinton did it, and and look, you know, I why can't Trump do it? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know that Bill Clinton. Clinton really ever ever came clean with the various affairs and the full measure of what he did to those who accused him of rape and things. But yeah, I I see no reason except it's just not who he is. So we have to keep praying for him. Oh, I pray so, for him every day. Yeah, well, thank you. So I agree with you, Lisa. Thanks for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let us go to Lewis in Rockford, Illinois. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Great. Um, I've been studying the Greek and the Hebrew. I'm, um, I'm a student in a seminary at Grand Canyon University, and I have a question about the word sabaton in the Greek and how it's translated in the Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, are there other places in the Hebrew that uh, use the word Sabbath or Shabbat as day? Just as day, not yeah, meaning like Sabbath day? Yeah, like day of the week. So give me an example. This way I'll, I'll look at both Hebrew and Greek at the same time, you know, the, the Hebrew right. and the Septuagint, of, of where you'd find, say, Sabbaton use. And, of course, Greek did not have the sh sound, so sh in right. Hebrew became sa in Greek. So give me an example of a verse where, where, well, where you're thinking. Well, the, the verse I was looking at in, in the New Testament was um, Matthew 28 and 1. Mm-hmm. And we have the word Sabbaton twice in there. One of, one of the times it means on the Sabbath day. Right. The second one, it says on the first day of the week. Got it. Exactly. Right. So uh, here's here's what I'm just going to do. And I'll, I'll go through the process. All right. Unfortunately, we don't have this on the screen for everyone to watch that's watching. But I'll I'll click on Sabaton in Greek. OK. And then I'll okay. search for that. And then that'll tell me uh, all the various times. It's oh, uh, almost 200 times the word occurs between the. Uh, the Septuagint and New Testament usage. Okay, mm-hmm. so right. the first the first time it occurs, Exodus sixteen twenty three. Um, yeah, it's just as Sabbath there, but basic basically, in short, rather because we've got two hundred references to go through here and over one hundred sixty verses, you know, to check every one. But but in short, it's uh, it, it can be used. Obviously, in, in Matthew 28, and I'm just going to scroll down there for a second, and I was, I was focusing more on Old Testament usage, so we just want to look at, at New Testament for a second. Uh, Matthew 28, 1, um, and you say that it, it says at the end of the Sabbath, it began towards the first day of the week, right? Um, right. Yeah, so as to that usage in Hebrew and how common it is, I, I, off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of when it would be used that way. It can be used 
for a holy day in another part of the week. In other words, a sacred convocation. So you can have, say, during that, and that's a big controversy within Passover, that there's first fruits, dedication of first fruits is the first day after the Sabbath. Does that mean the first day after Saturday, right, which is always the Sabbath, or the first day after a Sabbath within Passover, a holy convocation within Passover? But just meaning any day of the week or first day of the week, no, not, not to my knowledge. It's either going to be the seventh-day Sabbath or another holy convocation on a different day that can also go by that name. So the what would lie behind Matthew 28, 1 in that exact usage, uh, to me, is not primarily normal Old Testament usage. That being said, I will just double-check because I've looked at it more in terms of the Hebrew Bible than Greek New Testament. And if there's anything else I discover in the next few minutes in terms of something I haven't looked at, I'll, I'll let you and our audience know, okay? Thank you, Dr. Brown. It's been a pleasure. Yep, you're very welcome. Yeah, and s- certain things I-, I know right off the top of my head, uh, hopefully a lot. Other things just need to check, to double-check, make sure we didn't miss something. All right, 866-34. Yeah, I got time for one more call. Let's go to Miguel in Suffolk, Virginia. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. So you got another seminary question here. Awesome. What seminary are you in? Got... What's that? What seminary? I go to Virginia Beach Theological Seminary in Virginia Beach. Okay, great. Yeah, so I just got done reading um, Colossian Syncretism by Clinton E. Arnold. He talks some about... Um, magic and the influence of uh, things pertaining to angels and demons during that period of time first couple centuries of the church yeah so i'm trying i'm trying to keep it jewish here from a jewish historian point of view how influential were books like um the book of enoch or the wisdom of solomon uh during that period of time um as far as Judaism goes. Yeah. Oh, very, very influential. No, no question. You know, Enoch was widely read and, and widely revered. And while these books ultimately were not included in the Hebrew canon of scripture, they were absolutely influential, but more, more broadly, sir, uh, magic superstition, there was, there was a lot of that. There were incantations against demonic powers, there's a lot in right. the Talmud, religious literature, early early rabbinic literature about demons and demonology. There was not a sense of you have Satan versus God. You know, Satan was just part of, of the larger angelic kingdom. But he had his mm-hmm. domain of demons and things like that. To this day, in very, very religious Jewish households, uh, Hasidic, ultra-Orthodox Jews, there's still a lot of superstition. There, there are still things having to do with, with magic and Kabbalah and, you know, evil eye and, and stuff like that. So things that we would look at as just folktales, superstition, etc., that has become part of some of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish world, and especially the mystical Jewish world. I remember visiting the city of Safat or Safed, as it would be called, in northern Israel, which is kind of a headquarters for Jewish mysticism. And we went into the, the old shul, what used to be the, the synagogue, the, the shul of, of Yosef Karo, who lived about 500 years ago and was famous for his compilation of law. And the, the 
synagogue was painted kind of like a blue-green type color, if I remember. But we were told that was a good color to keep demons away. So wow. these, yeah, these superstitions uh, persist. And if, if you'll just do a search for magic and superstition in Judaism, you'll find there's quite a lot written about it. And even though nothing touched monotheism, there's one God, period, the creator. But the reality of the spiritual realm, in some mystical circles, the use of the sacred name, those kinds of things, uh, those definitely made their way into Judaism. I I studied it uh, extra some decades ago when I was looking at areas having to do with healing and then having to do with spiritual realm, and then that got me into other things about science and superstition. So, yeah, definitely definitely played a role. And then the whole theology of Enoch and the Watchers and all that, that's, that's another area. All right, back to you momentarily. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome. Welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown here. Delighted to be with you. If you have a Jewish-related question for me, So related to Hebrew, related to Jewish background to the New Testament, Messianic prophecy, Jewish objections to Jesus, Yeshua, modern Israel, conflict with Islam. Give me a call, 866-348-7884. We spent yesterday's broadcast talking about what made Billy Graham special and the significant ways that God used him. And folks called in as well with their own testimony and story. And I did this not just to honor his memory, but also to encourage us to follow in his example, both of integrity as well as giving himself to reach the lost. There were controversies, of course, that surrounded him. Remember, when he stood against segregation, when he literally, with his own hands, took down barriers that had been erected to separate blacks from whites in the 50s, those were controversial acts. It was not just he got up and said, everyone needs to believe in Jesus. He, he took action against what he believed was ugly social injustice. And, of course, it was ugly social injustice and completely unacceptable among those that claim to be Christians. So uh, those were controversies he was involved in then. And then also there were tapes released from conversation he had with Richard Nixon, which would have given the impression that he was in some way anti-Semitic and that he spoke against Jewish people. So there are Jewish articles today saying, how how should we look at him? How should we think of him? And there's an article in the Jewish Week, uh, Times of Israel, and it says, okay, okay, uh, uh, let's just see who wrote this article here, Uh, Gerald Zelzer. Uh, He says, look, I would have wish for less vitriolic words from Reverend Graham in his private conversations, but that should not blind us Jews to his constructive words, which benefited all religions, including my own. He says, let's recall on the plus side, Reverend Graham's faith was absolute. 
but not imperialistic. In 1995, for example, he refused to join a nationwide campaign of his Southern Baptist church to aggressively convert Jews and Muslims, explaining, I have never targeted Muslims, I have never targeted Jews. While Jesus was his exclusive personal path to salvation, Reverend Graham admitted not knowing who God would save and who not. Quote, it would be foolish of me to speculate on who will be there in heaven and who won't. I believe the love of God is absolute. I think he loves everybody regardless of what label they have. He was an evangelist, but not a fundamentalist. Uh, in any case, uh, he goes on to, to, to have a, a more gracious approach Yes, Billy Graham did preach salvation through the cross and call on people to believe in Jesus, but he did it in a way that did not put off all of his critics. All that to say that even though there were statements he made that caused controversy, people looked at the overall statement of his life and tenor of his life, and no one who knew him could then accuse him of being an anti-Semite. 866-34-TRUTH with your Jewish-related questions. Last week, or no, earlier this week, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, reiterated the claim that really the Jews have no claim on Israel today. It is only the Palestinians who have a claim. After all, they are the descendants of the ancient Canaanites, and therefore they have been in the land for millennia. And they are the rightful inhabitants of the land, and the Jews are the usurpers. Uh, in my book, 60 Questions Christians Ask About Jewish Beliefs and Practices, I tackled that idea. I tackled that idea that uh, Palestinians are descendants of the Canaanites. So uh, let, let me put that to rest. Let me break it down for you in some detail. And also, I'm going to give you a big surprise. Oh, oh yeah. Who might... Some of the Palestinians be descended from, you are in for a surprise. Okay, so um, the question I ask is question number 34 in 60 questions Christians ask about Jewish beliefs and practices. So are the Palestinians descendants of the ancient Canaanites? And, and I say, to begin with, historically speaking, a reminder, there's no such thing as a Palestinian people. So it's true that there have been Arabs living in the land of Palestine for centuries, Israel was called Palestine by the Romans, of course, as you know, 2nd century A.D. And it's true that some of these families have lived in Palestine without interruption for many generations. But at no time before 1967 did these Arabs even identify themselves as Palestinians, nor did they seek to achieve any type of statehood there. Uh, there was no Palestinian nationalism and no attempt to develop the territory as a homeland for these Arabs. And in 1936, when the Palestine Orchestra was formed, it was a Jewish orchestra. All right, so just to put that out to start. Um, so where did the concept of a Palestinian people come from? And they can, quote, trace their lineage all the way back to the Canaanites. Uh, Mitchell Bard, in his very simple book on understanding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, says this, prior to the partition plans in 1948, prior to partition, Palestinian Arabs did not view themselves as having a separate identity. When the first Congress of Muslim Christian Associations met in Jerusalem in February 1919 to choose Palestinian representatives for the Paris Peace Conference, the following resolution was adopted. Quote, we consider Palestine as part of Arab Syria, as it has never been separated from it at any time. We are connected with it by national, religious, linguistic, natural, economic, and geographical bonds. In 1937, a local Arab leader, 
Aouni Bey Abdul Hadi told the Peel Commission, which ultimately suggested the partition of Palestine, quote, there is no such country as Palestine. Palestine is a term that the Zionists invented. There is no Palestine in the Bible. Our country was for centuries part of Syria. So Aram in the Bible, Damascus, Syria, Aram, this, Damascus being the capital of Aram slash Syria, this has ancient history. This goes all the way back, and the Arabs living in Palestine consider themselves to be part of larger Syria. All right. Um, uh, Arya El Avneri pointed out that the estimated population of Muslims, Christians, and Jews in Palestine grew from 205,000 in 1554 to just 275,000 in the year 1800. There are Christians living there, Arabs living there, Jews living there. Where was the cry of Palestine as our homeland among the worldwide Arab population? It didn't exist. At what point in time did the Arab population begin to rise dramatically? It was when Jews began to return to the land in larger numbers, especially after 1880, at which time the bulk of the more than 400,000 Arabs living in Palestine were themselves relatively recent immigrants. In other words, the great bulk of those who identify as Palestinians today are more recent inhabitants of the land. Even if some of them have been there for 100 plus years, that is not 3,000 years, that is not 4,000 years, that is not 2,000 years, that is not 1,000 years. The vast majority came in later as Jews began to develop the land. More Arabs then began to come in. Moving ahead to the mid-20th century, Michael Comey points out that in 1948, just before the British withdrawal from Palestine began, 9% of the land was owned by Jews, 3% by Arab citizens living in the land, 17% was abandoned Arab land, and the remaining 71% was crown or state land vested in the mandatory British government and subsequently in the state of Israel. So even though you had more Arabs living there, you didn't have the land largely owned by Arabs at that time. All right, so uh, the population of Judea Samaria called the West Bank and Gaza was only 450,000 in 1967. Uh, Today it's what? Over three and a half million. So for people to say, oh, we go all the way, all the way back. No, most of this is much more recent. The great rapid growth is much more recent. So the question then comes down to what about the Canaanites? Can at least some, maybe a remnant, trace their ancestry back to the Canaanites? Well, The fact is there's no national or ethnic group that can trace itself back to the ancient Canaanites since these nations were either wiped out or became totally assimilated into the surrounding nations millennia ago, or they became part of the people of Israel. They were either subjugated and became part of the people of Israel like the Gibeonites, or they were wiped out, or they fled to foreign lands, they were pushed out to foreign lands and assimilated into all those populations. So there's no such thing as the ancient Canaanites continuing in a distinct way through the centuries. They're gone. Again, they either assimilated into the people of Israel or they assimilated into the surrounding nations or they were wiped out. So there is no Canaanite identity to go back to. The same can be said about ancient Philistines who inhabited five cities and would now be Gaza Strip that they were either completely wiped out as a people a couple thousand years ago, or they assimilated among others. Either they were exterminated or they assimilated among others, but they have no ongoing history. 
There is no ongoing Philistine history or Canaanite history. It comes to an end many hundreds, even thousands of years ago. Uh, so the, the other thing that's worth pointing out is this. And here's the big, big surprise. <clears throat> then I'll, I'll go to the phones, 866-34-TRUTH. Here's the big surprise. It is possible that some Palestinians today actually go back to being ancient Jews, ancient Israelites. You say, what? Yeah, there is some DNA evidence pointing in that direction along with certain customs and practices. Now, look, I've only studied this a little. I've studied it with some solid authors or journalists or reports. In other words, it's, it's not National Enquirer tabloid kind of stuff, but I've only studied it a little. But this is the theory that there were Jews that remained in the land of what became Palestine after the destruction of the Second Temple, even after Jews were banished from Jerusalem in the second century. They still remained in the land. After several more centuries, there was the Muslim conquest. So now you're talking the seventh century of this era. And during the Muslim conquest, a number of these Jews converted to Islam and continued living in the land, but still preserved some of their Jewish identity. This is the theory. And there's the argument that some Palestinians, or maybe a good percentage of them, are actually ancient Jews who converted to Islam, and they were the very small remnant that stayed in the land, but some of them continued to secretly practice certain Jewish customs, and those customs are still practiced today in certain Palestinian circles. That is the theory, and that is the alleged evidence. Back with your calls on Thirdly Jewish Thursday. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. All right, I, I got a call in the first half hour of the broadcast, so those that just joined me at the bottom of the hour missed it, asking about the use of Sabaton, which is the, equivalent, uh, the Greek equivalent of Hebrew Shabbaton, and how it's used in the New Testament, that sometimes it means Sabbath, sometimes it means first day of the week, and that uh, is it ever used like that in the Hebrew Bible? Can it just mean day? When I was, when I was looking at the Matthew 28 one, just trying to glance down, and then I started looking at other verses, once I looked again, so Lewis, to answer your question, it, it never just means day. In the New Testament, it can mean week. So Shabbat can mean the Sabbath, or it can mean or Shabbaton in Greek. So Sabbaton can mean the uh, the Sabbath itself, or it could refer to a week. That's the, again the seven part of it. So the seventh day, or a period of seven days. So it's the first day of the week. Sabbaton there would be week, not day. In Hebrew, however, Shabbaton would just be referring to the Sabbath celebration, a holy Sabbath set apart as Sabbath. 
and that could be for Shabbat as well, that it could be a, a special consecrated time called a holy day of rest. That would be a Shabbat, a Sabbath, or as the Jews most of the time, the seventh-day Sabbath. That part we had said accurately, but I didn't respond uh, to the question about can it be day in the New Testament. As I understand it, it's week, not day on some occasions. All right. And for those who say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, Lewis, Lewis got it, and it was his question. All right, to the phones, we go to Thomasville, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. A uh, quick question for you. Preaching Sunday on the law in the New Testament, and Jesus says, you know, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. So we look at the law now through this threefold division, the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil. Would an mm-hmm. Old Testament Jew have looked at the law in that same threefold division, or is that something we just see looking back after the cross? Uh, yes, it's, it's a convenient way of looking at it, and it has a lot of truth to it. But no, uh, an Old Testament Jew would not have perceived it as rigidly, and a traditional Jew to this day, even though they can see those distinctions, they would not perceive it like that. To them, Torah is much more holistic. Now, notice first in Matthew five seventeen that Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law or, or the prophets. And then he goes on talking about the law after that. So he's there talking about the Hebrew scriptures as a whole, that he didn't come to abolish but to fulfill. They, they point towards him. But Christians subsequently looking at the law and say, okay, you have the moral law, so don't commit adultery. You have the ceremonial law, like blood sacrifices. And then you have the civic law in terms of you know, build a parapet on your roof of your house because roofs are flat so someone doesn't fall off. You know, that's just basic things. Or go to the judges when you have disputes about these various things. And it's useful to break things down into categories because we could say, as far as fulfilling the Torah, that all of the moral laws Jesus takes to a deeper level, to a higher standard. Right. Then we could also say, as far as the ceremonial laws, he brings them to fulfillment by dying on the cross and becoming our great high priest and forgiving our sins through his blood and purifying us. And then we could say the civic laws, we get wisdom from as to how they apply, but they, they were especially given to Israel as a theocracy. So that's a good way that we can break it down by way of explanation. But if you were, say, just reading through Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 20, you'll find that they can go back and forth. You know, you can have a moral law, and then you can have Sabbath, and then you can have something else that seems ceremonial or or civic. And then, in other words, it's all intertwined, and it was looked at in a much more holistic way. And and that's why I think we, we need to, when we break it down, break it down in a way that is then holistic. This is how he fulfills it. In other words, have the different strands and show how he brings them to their fullest and highest meaning. Uh, and 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 it, it, for example, the calendar—that's another part, right? So the biblical right. calendar, uh, the the spring feast he fulfilled with his death and resurrection and giving of the spirit. The fall feast he'll he'll fulfill with his return. So those remain to be fulfilled. That's part of what Yeshua said in Matthew five, that until heaven and earth pass away, not not even the smallest letter will pass away until everything's fulfilled. So there are two untils there, right? There's until right. everything is fulfilled and until heaven and pass away. Heaven has passed away. Some has been fulfilled already and some remains to be fulfilled. Would it be correct to say that the civil and the ceremonial are derived from the moral or is that not accurate? 
Uh, no, you could make the argument that everything is derived from the moral. There are Jewish traditions that say all 613 commandments are contained within the Ten Commandments and can be derived from them. So you, you, could, you could present it in terms of the inner core, right? You know, certainly uh, living a moral life was more important to God than bringing a blood sacrifice. But because we don't live perfectly moral lives and because of guilt and substitution and atonement, this was part of what was required. So, you know, you might, you might do it in terms of circles. You know, here's the innermost circle. Here's the next circle coming out of that. And here's the next circle coming out of that. Anything that helps people realize it's one law that God gave and it has different layers and applications to it. And to the extent that you can get insight without forcing it as to how everything flows out of the moral law. Sure, look, Paul reduces everything to the love commandment and, and, right. and says that if we love one another, we won't commit adultery, we won't murder. So he's saying all the moral laws will be fulfilled if you follow that. And then uh, traditional Judaism has a discussion. It's a fascinating discussion as to there are 613 commandments, but then this one reduced it to this amount, this one reduced it to this, and Micah reduced it to three, and Micah six eight, you know, to, to do justly and walk humbly before God and to, uh, you know, to, to love mercy, right? That he reduces it to three, what does God require of you? And then it says Habakkuk reduced to one, the just will live by faith. This is in Talmud in rabbinic literature. So, you know, the, there's, these are all questions that I think you can have a, a lively discussion with and, and open up in a way without, again, you never want to force something. You want to you ride it as long as it can be ridden in that respect. But, sure, you could, you could make that argument. I'm, I'm not saying I've ever tried to, but I am saying there are Jewish traditions that say all the 613 commandments are derived from the 10. So see what you can do. Okay. I appreciate your your insight today. Thank you. You bet. Sure thing. Uh, all right. Not, I'm out of time for calls. Let me say a couple things. All right. <clears throat> Shall I start a fresh new controversy? Yes, I, I will. We are often told by those who say that all of the Torah commandments are binding on believers today, that we're under the Sinai covenant as much as we're able to keep it because Jesus didn't abolish you fulfilled and, and we're to follow his example, etc. And they will say, look, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And many would say, no, 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 that just means the commandments that I teach, what I say. So the word commandments, entele in Greek, mitzvah in Hebrew, is used in different ways in the New Testament. If you'll read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's primarily used in terms of the Ten Commandments, the commandments that God gave uh, Mount Sinai, it's primarily used. You know the commandments, right? The rich young ruler, you know the commandments. In John's gospel, the word entele commandments there, just look up everyone, is used in terms of the teaching of Jesus himself, Yeshua's own commandments. In other words, if you're reading in a red letter Bible, the red letter commandments. And that's how I believe First John uses it and Revelation uses it as well. Those who keep the commandments of God, speaking of the commandments that Jesus himself Gave, But study it in John. Look in John and see if you can follow my point. Just look up every time commandment occurs there or command and see uh, if you will understand my vantage point there. And I just I start with the text. I do my best to be inductive. So I, I start reading it. I look at verse after verse after verse, also using a concordance, just look at verse after verse after verse and then say, OK, what is the data saying and do my best to be 
inductive as I study. No one is going to be perfect. We all have certain presuppositions, but we constantly pray, God, open my eyes, show me where I'm missing something, show me where I am wrong, and keep studying scripture to grow and learn. All right, friends, have you pre-ordered Playing With Holy Fire yet? Yep, comes out April 3rd, a wake-up call to the Charismatic Pentecostal Church. Of course, you can order it on Amazon and ebook form, or there's an audible book this time, or you can get the paperback. But if you'd like to get a collector's edition, something special from us, and it's special for me too, because I get to sign these, you can pre-order at our website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. You'll see a banner, maybe the first second banner that comes up on the page. You can pre-order there. And what we do, we get the first printing. So however many pre-orders we get, whether it's the first 100 or 200 or 300, whatever it is, we number them, all right? So you may get, you'll say, I got number 31. I got number six. I got number 108. So they're numbered, and then I sign them to you with a scripture. So it's special for me. We got a big stack of books. We pray over them, and I get to sign them for you. It's special for you in, in that if someone wants to borrow it, that's your book. It's numbered. It's signed. We only do it with the first edition. And also, uh, it's a way that you can help us and support our ministry. So go ahead and pre-order. And, and we trust me, friends, we go for it. We tell the truth. We talk about abuses openly and candidly. But in the context of this, that God is doing an amazing thing around the earth. And that in the last century, more people have come to faith than any other time in world history. And it is primarily through the charismatic Pentecostal outpouring. This has happened worldwide. But with the rapid growth, there have been lots of abuses. And we have often not good, done a good job of self-policing. So we tell it like it is in this book. And, and charismatic leaders were lining up to endorse it, wanting to put their amen behind it. Go ahead and pre-order today. Back with you tomorrow. You've got questions. We've got answers.